Happy birthday, church. If you're visiting, my name is Peter, and uh, I get to serve as the lead pastor of our church. Still, 10 years later, you're stuck with me. I think the best way to celebrate today is to go right to God's Word. We are going to talk about the happiest sad day in history. The happiest sad day in history. We are in week 10 of our For the Love series, going through the book of John. We are in John chapter 19, if you want to open there. We're doing this series in tandem with our sister church in Austin, Mosaic Church. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet with me to honor a 10-year-old tradition of honoring the reading of the word. John 19. We'll start with the last part of verse 16. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written... I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them among them, divided them into four parts, one for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold, your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Jesus, thank you. I pray that you would add a blessing to the reading of your word. Lord, your faithfulness is like the sun. You are so faithful to us. Thank you, Jesus, for 10 years. And thank you for today. We can't presume upon tomorrow. 
but we can trust you in today and we can trust you for our tomorrow and we can trust this because Jesus, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever and you've given us such a beautiful and powerful yesterday that leaves us with wonder and nostalgia and joy and confidence about our today and our tomorrow. And I ask, Lord, that you would help me to be faithful to your word in such a way where we would be moved to honoring you for who you are, to glorifying you, and to receiving the joy that we only get in you. For the sake of the nations, we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. A month or two ago, we shared with you that we've officially, as a church, teamed up with Mosaic Church in Austin that their leadership has become our governance and oversight, playing a role that was played for for a few years by our legal board and uh, the first seven years of our church by our elder board, and that Mosaic is helping us to reestablish elders locally here. We've also been preaching in sermon series with them. So I have a, a confession to make as I get into unpacking this text. When I saw that on the docket for our anniversary celebration service, Morgan Stevens, our pastor at Mosaic, had John 19, initially I was thinking, you know what, maybe I'll do another text and forego this overly somber text for our celebration, maybe a text that's a bit more chipper. I'll do a different sermon. And the Lord wouldn't allow it. In fact, looking back, I should have slapped myself. Because this is exactly the substantive reason why we have joy on a day like today. It's the perfect text for today. We have 10 years and going on eternity of beauty and joy because of this day. Friends of mine from other faiths always wonder how it is that we call this day that we're reading of in this text. We call it Good Friday. That's a strange thing to call it. It didn't seem like a lot of good stuff was happening, right? It's the happiest sad day in all of history. Morgan Stevens, our pastor in Austin, says, This day was the high point of human history and the low point of human sin. So why can't it be so happy? Because when you put the worst of us in the cage, if you will, against the best of God's mercy. There is no competition for which one wins. As Amos, the prophet, said years and centuries before this happy, sad day, he said this is the day, essentially, where mercy triumphs over judgment. We don't have to wonder which is bigger, my ugly or his beauty. It is his beauty. There was a hymn written about this day in the 1700s that was remade by by the, the late Edwin Hawkins in the 1960s. He actually died just this January. He's a Grammy Award winning composer. And the song was focused on this gruesome, tortuous, bloody day where Jesus hung on a Roman cross suffocating The paradox rings out. Oh, happy day! 
Oh, happy, that's your part. Oh, happy day. Oh, happy day. When Jesus washed, when Jesus washed my sin away. Oh, happy. I didn't even warn you about that. Good job. Yes. Good job. I didn't even warn y'all. Okay, now listen. It is a happy day, and we are singing about a man dying on a cross in the worst and most painful painful ways. And the reason why it's so happy is because just 36 hours later, after verse 30 here, the tomb that he was very really laid in was very really empty. And that Sunday morning, Jesus got up out of the grave, and he is alive right now. And right now he ever lives to make intercession for you. And so now all the bad stuff that you might want to hide can be exposed as much as it was on that day on the cross and washed. Oh, happy day when Jesus washed my sin, my sin. I know my sin. You know yours. And you know who knows it all better? God. And he washed it away. And it's a happy day. There's sadness to this day. This day is where, like Morgan said, the the low point of human sin. We need to be able to understand sin and grieve our sin that we crucified Jesus on this day. That the you do you spirit was in full play. Here's the problem with you do you. When I do me, I will inevitably have to step on you. And it causes an enmity and a tortuous, horrible, destructive pattern in humanity. And we crucified Jesus, not just the Romans, not just the Jewish leaders. I crucified Jesus. And there's, there's a sadness and a somberness to it. And the joy is that he rose from the dead. As Peter, as Peter said in Acts 2, this Jesus whom you crucified, God made both Lord and cross in Christ. God rose him from the dead. And it's a happy day. I'm going to take a little time to unpack our text, drawing out this happy, sad vibe, operating under one key assumption, and that is this, that you've got problems, and so do I. And you might say, okay, thanks, I guess. But here's the good news about our problems. That in this text, John 19, on this day, Jesus solves our individual problem and our communal problem. Our our individual problem, our biggest problem, our problem for which all the other problems that you've probably been worried about this week are nothing compared to the severity of this problem of sin. You could call it your personal problem. Jesus solves it on this happy day. And number two, our communal problem, our relational problem. So in other words, Jesus solves the problem that I have, but in so doing also solves the problem that we have, that prevents us from being we. So first of all, on this happiest sad day in history, Jesus, number one, solves your individual problem and mine. In this text in John, there is so much promise being fulfilled, so much prophecy being completed. 
Here's just one of them. Psalm 22, verse 17, David says, I can count, he said, almost a thousand years before Jesus was dying on the cross. He says, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing, they cast lots. He'll go on to detail crucifixion language. Again, almost a thousand years, around a thousand years before Jesus died, but seven or eight centuries before crucifixion was even thought of or before Rome even was a thing or a people. David is predicting this. And on this day, fast forward, where Jesus is hanging on the cross, he's fulfilling this scripture. He's legitimizing our gathering as a church today. He's fueling our joy for the next 10 going on thousand years of what he's doing here with us. And it's a day of prolonged pain. Jesus is dying on the cross, solving our problem. Here's how I want to navigate these two big issues, unpacking our text. There's a few different moments in our text where Jesus speaks and is communicating from the cross. Now, I hope that you've never actually seen a crucifixion, but even from the basic reenactments of crucifixions, even the the reenactments play out the same, where people, when they're hung on a cross, it is a, a collapsing of a lung issue that causes people to die. So when the nails are driven through the carpal ligaments on each side and the nails are driven through the feet, It is such that in hanging like that, you are collapsed down on your lungs and you can't breathe. And so for every breath, you have to pull up on the nails just to breathe. Now, we have recorded here that Jesus wasn't just pulling up on the nails to breathe, but he's taking the time to communicate with his beloved friends. So I want to start by some of the things he says at the end. Verse 28, after this, knowing that was that all was now finished, Jesus said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. My opinion is that Jesus wasn't literally thirsty, any less craving sour wine at that time. He was thirsting to complete the work that God had given him to do. He was longing to bridge the gap between sinful humans like you and me and a perfect and holy God. He was craving, thirsting for, making his rebelled creation, his enemies, into sons and daughters. He was thirsting to do all that it would take to complete all the work that we couldn't do to be restored to him, no matter how much it hurt, no matter how much it cost him. That's what I believe he was thirsting for. We see this clearly. The last thing he says, verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. And church, you need to know that because of what Jesus did on the cross that day, that that today it's still finished. 
And there's nothing you can do to add or improve upon that which has already been completed and totally finished. We as Christians, we don't work for salvation. We say it all the time. We work from salvation. All the other faiths and religions and ideas in history and in the world today are essentially man's attempt to improve upon themselves or get to God. But the beautiful paradox and scandal about this Good Friday that we're reading about in this scripture is that it is not where we got to God. It's where we failed to get to God and God paid all the price to come to us and get to us and solve our sin problem. Jesus came to bring us salvation and the rest of life is a beautiful response to that. He makes us capable beings to dwell with him in heaven by covering us with his blood, his forgiveness. Some of you here are really trying hard to please God today. You're working really hard to approve upon yourself. You're working hard to fulfill your calling or whatever else you've convinced yourself is what you need to do to make yourself acceptable before God. And you're wondering, am I doing enough? Am I doing enough to please God? And it's kind of this question like, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. Let me help you remove the maybe. You are not doing enough. You never will do enough. You cannot do enough to please God. There's a happy part to this. Jesus knows this. He knows that you can't fix yourself, no matter how much you try. And so he doesn't want you to meet him in the middle. He's come all the way and finished everything required for you to be with him. You don't have to wonder if you do enough. You didn't, you can't, but Jesus paid it all. You don't have to strive any longer to try to please him. In fact, you also need to know that if you are striving, it's not humility, it's unbelief. Jesus paid everything for you to be with him. Now, the rest of our life is to obey out of response with the power he gives us. Growing up, I didn't even know I needed a savior until I was in in the process of being saved by him and drawn by the Holy Spirit, being transformed. And I remember back to the few years before that as a teenager, I remember how hard I tried to to make myself right and to please God. And the more I tried, the more condemned I felt. And it wasn't just Catholic guilt. It was a little bit of that. It was also the Holy Spirit whispering to me, Peter, you have such a grave individual problem that you cannot solve it individually. Only me, only I can solve it. Only the blood of Jesus that was fully paid for you can remedy this issue that you're feeling. And so after coming to know Jesus, the beauty of how his beauty confronts my ugliness and it's all out there and it's forgiven and covered was an amazing thing to me. And celebrating that and remembering that through the the old school methods of confessing my sin, 
going to men's groups and, and just being able to talk about my sin, not in a way that glorifies it. Like, hey, let's keep having fun with this thing, but talking about sin and the junk that I was thinking and saying and doing in a way that gave the power of it to God so God could override it with his blood and his power. That thing that I got to do then is a, is a habit. It's an addiction, if, if that can be redeemed, that I still have now that we can confess our sin and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In the last 10 years of this church, I've heard uh, well-meaning, I guess, people, church growth experts at times, even say things like, you know, we need to, we need to not talk about sin so much. You know, we, we, we need to repackage our message of Christianity as, as you know, kind of fitting something that's not so antiquated and not dated like sin. It's kind of a downer. It's kind of a bummer. Let me tell you, that is a big lie. If we stop talking about sin, it doesn't take away from the fact that we're still dealing with it. And what's beautiful is that Jesus has exposed it in the ugliest of places on this day. And it's very clear that you can talk about the worst of human sin. And therefore, if that's covered, mine's covered. And I can talk to people about it. I can confess it to God. Because the power of God and the power of his love is way bigger than the ugliness that I struggle with. It covers. And so if anything, in the last few years, for the future of our formation as a church, and where God's leading us, we've actually gone back to more of the ancient things that we can enjoy. Old school things like confessing our sin and remembering what Jesus did on the cross, even through what he gives us at the table, that through faith we can remember what he did. That going back and receiving what he's done is one of the greatest things we can do for our future and for our growth. What good is the Savior that doesn't save me from my sin? We're going to talk about it. The gospel in its purest sense is Jesus died for my sin and he rose from the dead. Jesus died for my sin. My five-year-old and my six-year-old the other day were talking at breakfast, and my wife overheard them discussing their view of the Bible, and I loved it. My five-year-old said, Asa, to her older brother, Asa, did you know that all the bodies are the peoples that are naughty? All the peoples are naughty, except God. He's not naughty at all. And Asa says, yes, but he died to take our consequence. We're going to clean that up a little bit. They're getting really, really close. (laughs) Jesus died for our sin. What if we learn all sorts of other things and we don't establish on that? God forbid. Jesus died for my sin. It's a happy day when I read through this. Jesus solves your biggest individual problem, and that's not all. Number two, Jesus solves our communal problem. Everyone's favorite movie, Mars Attacks. Jack Nicholson's character, he asked that question, why can't we all, I can't do the Jack Nicholson. (laughs) Why can't we all just get along? 
Well, there's an answer to that question, Jack. We can't all just get along because the collective nature of all of our individual problems renders us all unfit to actually get along. So not only do we have an individual problem, but how it reflects mutually causes us to be broken in relationship. And Jesus on the same cross on this same day solves that problem too. The gospel that brings me forgiveness and purity also capacitates me to do very real relationship with you. Even when you and I are acting less than ideal, his blood sings a better song. 1 John 1.7 has both of these in it. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Again, all sin. All sin. The blood that cleanses me is what gives me the power to be in true fellowship with you. No matter our background, no matter our preferences, no matter our political persuasion, his blood sings a better song over us. Now, knowing what Jesus was doing on the cross on this day, how he was literally dying to save the world and fix every billion, trillion amount of individual problems in the world, it's amazing that the first thing he says from the cross is this. Verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold, your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. There's so much happening here, and I want to point out just a little bit of it. Remember, the, the inscription above the cross was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. He's the King of the Jews. He's the Savior of the world. He's, he's King, He's Savior, and He's Caretaker. Jesus, first thing, from his example of what he's doing here, he wasn't so busy saving the world that he couldn't look after his mom. Isn't that amazing? Some of us need to make a little side note. We need to call our mom today and love on her a little bit, no matter how busy we are with whatever we think is so important. Jesus was able to care for his own mother And Jesus isn't too busy to care for you and your very real struggles that you have today. That's something we can learn from his example. In the last 10 years in this church, I have so often failed in that false dichotomy of serving Jesus and advancing his kingdom versus caring for my family, as if I had to choose one or the other. I've failed so often in thinking I had to pick where Jesus is saying, no, you'll do both, but you need to prioritize rightly. And for anyone here who wants to co-labor with us and to go to the nations with us and to continue growing with us, what God calls you to do at home, whether you're single or married or whatever, Jesus is single, looking after his mother. Whatever he calls you to do, he's not having, wanting you to pick between your family and the kingdom of God. He's given us power and wisdom to follow him in both. Now, the more powerful thing for me is not just what he's showing 
by his example, but what he's demonstrating in power. He's saying to his mother, Mom, you need what I'm doing for you right now because you're a sinner. You need my forgiveness. John, I love you. You need my forgiveness. And check this out. Because of the man dying on the cross for the sins of the world, these two people that are not blood-related, because of his word, what he's speaking with his mouth, and what he's speaking through hanging on the cross, they are now family. If you came into this church, and maybe you're not used to the type of diversity that you're seeing displayed here, and maybe like others, you've, uh, you've prejudged like, oh, this is just like you know, a superficial thing. They, maybe they like having a lot of different colors of beautiful faces for their stock photos or whatever. Let me tell you, only the blood of Jesus can make us family. Only the blood of Jesus can say, behold, your brother. Behold, your sister. And because he can, the story that Jesus writes in humanity supersedes all of the stories of divisions and ugliness that we see today. There is a greater story because of this happiest of sad days in human history. And what was the message that united them together? What was literally being demonstrated on the cross? Forgiveness. He's dying on the cross to forgive our sin. And because that, that forgiveness goes to you, it now fills the space in between you. Over the last 10 years, thinking about the stupid things I've done to hurt other people, even in this church, the, the, the foolishness that I've put my wife through, the joy of knowing that the blood of Jesus covers me and, and gives us power to be in relationship makes me sing a deep kind of song. Look, I've, I've loved uh, some of the stories of our great, exciting, more hyped times. There, there's been some amazing stories of, of new things happening and triumphs and all sorts of fun things in our history. Seeing new believers come to faith, new members get lit with the gospel and the power of God, Holy Spirit gifts, that's all been great, but you know, the new things are great, but probably my favorite is the old people like me and others forgiving people that I don't quite like you anymore, but Jesus can restore me to forgive you and to love you and then to like you again. That's been one of my favorite things to see happen. When we can walk in forgiveness with one another and we never have to wonder, is this vibe going to carry me to to maintaining my covenant with you, you know, look, the vibe goes away. I've said over the last few years to, to new members, members interviews, I've said things like, you know what, I hope we can hurt each other's feelings soon. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> Why? Why? Because maybe, maybe it's oftentimes if you like me a lot, partially it's just because you don't quite know me yet. <laughs> and the same goes for all of us. But when we can get to know each other and the ugly parts come out, and we can see the blood of Jesus go to that place. There's nothing more powerful for your relationships, for your life, for your family. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make 
me, us, whole again, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Would you stand to your feet with me?